Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Last week we looked at this transitional passage in Galatians. Paul is wrapping up his defense of his own calling and of his message. And he's not doing that out of ego, trying to defend himself for its own sake. He wants the Galatians to know they can trust what he's taught them. And so that's, that was last week, again, this kind of transitional passage. And what it looks like is a public rebuke of Peter. That's what, this, that's what we looked at last week. Peter's in Jerusalem. He goes to Antioch, which is where Paul is. It's along with Jerusalem. It's one of the two major hubs of Christianity at the time. Antioch is primarily made up of Gentile background believers. We don't know why Peter went. Maybe because there's 65,000 Jews in Antioch, and he was an apostle to the Jews, so we went to work with them. We don't know. But when he gets there, he's just he's in the mix with everybody. And when they have family dinners, he's sitting with these Gentile background Christians. There's no reason for him not to. But then some troublemakers come from Jerusalem. They're these Jewish Christians. And I'm going to use that phrase, and I've been using it, Jewish Christians. But realize this is a subset. Peter's a Jewish Christian. Paul is. James is. John is. This is a small subset who believe that you have to follow the law in order to be made holy and reconciled to God. And so uh, these guys come from Jerusalem up to Antioch. They get in Peter's ear, and then they get into his head, and he starts to withdraw from eating with these Gentiles to the point that he is eating at Jewish-only tables, just with Jewish Christians. And because he's Peter, he's a leader, all the other Jewish Christians, even Barnabas, are doing the same thing. And when Paul sees that, it's not just that the church is divided along ethnic lines. It's that Peter is communicating something that's antithetical to the gospel. What he's, remember, Jews don't eat with Gentiles because they're afraid of becoming unclean, defiled, um, impure if they eat with someone who has a Gentile background. So when Peter starts pulling away from the Gentiles, what he's communicating is you guys aren't holy, you're not clean, you're not pure, which what he's saying is the gospel's not enough. Trusting in Jesus is not enough to make you holy. You've got to follow this Old Testament law as well. It's the gospel that's at stake. Is that, uh, excuse me, is at stake? And so Paul rebukes Peter publicly because Peter's actions were public. And today we're going to look at his uh, theological reasons for why he says what he says, and this sets up the rest of the book. So we're going to see just a snapshot of Paul's message and some of the um, implications of that message, which will then be expounded in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. So chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So first Paul gives a, a brief statement of the message that he gave to the 
Galatians, which is the same message he gave to Peter. It's his gospel. We're justified by faith in Jesus. That, that is his good news. Justification is a big New Testament word. It comes from the law court. It's a legal word, and it means to be declared righteous, to be declared in the right, to be declared in right relationship with God. So if you picture God as the judge, when he justifies us, he declares that we're righteous in his sight and that we're in right relationship, right standing with him. And Paul says that comes to us through faith in Jesus. That's the basis for our justification. It's it's our faith in Jesus. And we've said this before, just keep in mind, in the Bible Belt especially, super easy ditch to fall into. Faith is not synonymous with knowledge. They are not the same thing. There's an intellectual component to faith, but faith and knowledge are not the same. So there, there are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Read those gospels. There are demons that know things that are true about Jesus. They know some things that even his followers don't know. They know his identity before the 12 disciples do. They, they, they know that he's the son of God. Knowing that is not faith. That's just knowing something that's true. Faith is trust, it's commitment, it's allegiance. There's a, it's a relational word. Again, trust is the best synonym that we have. So when Paul says we're justified through faith in Jesus, he doesn't mean we're justified through knowing certain things that are true about him. Knowing that he's the son of God, knowing that he died for our sins, knowing that he was raised from the dead. Those are just facts. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're trusting him. It doesn't mean that you've taken those facts and said, what do those things mean for me in terms of the way I'm relating to him and to others? So just keep that in mind. We're justified. We're declared righteous through our faith, through our trust in Jesus. The other option, and Paul says it's actually not an option, is to be justified through the law. So this is not always the case, but often when you see the word law in the New Testament, it's referring to what we call the old covenant. A covenant is it's the terms of a relationship. So when God meets with Moses in Exodus on Mount Sinai, he gives him the old covenant. Here's the terms of what it means for me to be your God and for y'all, Israel, to be my people. There's 613 commands in the old covenant. There's the, the Ten Commandments that we all know. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. And then the other 603, not all of them, but many of them, you can slot under those ten. And so when you're thinking law, that's, that's what you can think of. You can at least have some sense of those Ten Commandments. And Paul is saying nobody is going to be declared righteous by God through their keeping of that law, that old covenant, that old term of agreement. Why? Because we break it. We can't be declared righteous through the law because we break the law. If the law were to testify, again, law, court, justification, legal word, if God the Father is the judge, if the law were to testify in my trial or Courtney's or Ryan's or Les's or whoever, 
what the law would say is they broke it. They broke me. That's all the law can say. They broke me at some point and in some ways. And I don't think any of us would argue with that. And that's even just looking at the letter of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the letter and he pushes it into our heart. He said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit murder. I'm saying if you call someone a fool, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I say if you look at a man or a woman lustfully, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. He takes what was external and he makes it internal. Sin is not just something we do with our hands. It has to do with the posture of our hearts. And if we use that as our standard, then again, nobody, nobody is going to say, yeah, I should be declared righteous because I've kept the law, because we've all broken it. If Jesus were to testify for me or for Les or for Courtney or for Ryan, what he would say is the same thing. He'd say, yeah, they broke the law. He doesn't pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, they broke the law. But I paid the penalty for each one of them. For the sins that they committed, for all of the law, every time they broke the law, I paid the penalty for them. They're mine. And it's on that basis that we can be declared righteous. And so that's the, that's the good news. That's what Paul taught the Galatians. And then you have this small subset of troublemakers who are saying, that's not enough. It's not enough. And then Paul jumps into their primary objection. If that's true, if you're setting aside the old covenant, if you're setting aside the Ten Commandments, if you're setting aside these 613 commands that tell us how to be faithful, these are the commands that we as a people have been following for 1,500 years, from Moses to Jesus. If you're going to say that suddenly that doesn't matter, that following those, obeying those. Remember, this is what God revealed to Moses to say, here's what it looks like to be my people. I'm spelling it out for you. This is what I'm looking for from you. If you're suddenly saying that none of that matters, that people are declared righteous, not based on their, their obedience, their keeping of that law, but just based solely on trusting in Jesus, well, that makes us just like the Gentiles, which is a synonym for sinners. That makes us just like Gentile sinners who didn't have the law. That, 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 that unmoors us from how God has revealed where to live. That's going to lead in, to recklessness, to lawlessness, to wild, sinful living. What you're doing in saying that we're justified solely through faith in Jesus, you're actually saying Jesus promotes sin because you've pulled away this agreement that says, here's how to live. You've taken that away. It's suddenly not important. You're saying the only thing that matters is trusting in him. And so we're, we're ditching all of these specifics on how we live. You have Jesus is promoting sin then, telling people they can live however they want. And Paul says, no way. No, 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 no. You, you, don't, you don't understand what I'm saying. Let, let me fill in the blanks. He gives two reasons why... That's wrong, that faith in Jesus leads to reckless, wild, sinful living. And the first one, he says, if we tear down what we've, if we rebuild what we've, what we've torn down, then we really are lawbreakers. That word lawbreaker in verse 18 is transgressor. It's someone who steps over a line, someone who breaks a boundary. So what Paul is saying to Peter 
into these Jewish Christians, this small subset of troublemakers who are saying, we have to continue to follow the law if we're going to be holy, if we're going to be acceptable to God. Paul says, that's been torn down. If we rebuild that system, if we rebuild the system that says our right standing with God is based on our obedience to the law, then we're actually lawbreakers. Then we're actually stepping outside the bounds of what God is doing. There's a new covenant now. There's a new covenant that was established through Jesus' death and resurrection. If we go back to the old covenant, that's what pushes us up. That's what makes us lawbreakers. We're stepping outside the terms of the agreement that God has now made with us. That's what's going to get us sideways. And then he goes further. His second reason, it's not just God's made a new covenant and to violate that covenant to step outside of it to cross those boundaries is what makes us lawbreakers he says when we become christians and this is a mystery that we can't explain we are united with jesus there's a simple picture behind me that doesn't at all do the reality justice but maybe it helps you visualize what happens before we're christians we're separated alienated from Jesus. When we become Christians, somehow, and you can read this if you want, in Romans 6 goes into a little bit more detail. We're grafted into him. We become, we're united with him, and he takes up residence within us. So because of that, again, kind of the, 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 this mystery around union, we, we are now in Christ, and Jesus is in us. There's some things that are true. Verses 19 and verses 20 are parallel. So when Peter sa- excuse me, when Paul says, through the law, I died to the law, that's another way of saying I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Those are two different ways of saying the same thing. What he's saying is that picture behind me, because we're, again, somehow mysteriously joined to Jesus, when he died, we died. He died through the law. He died in obedience to law as a sacrifice for our sins. And the result of his death and our death, because we're identified with him, is we're now dead to the law. When you see the word death or die in the New Testament, and it's used metaphorically, not a physical death, it means that that there's such a radical change in your relationship to something that that something no longer has control or um, dominates your life. So we die to ourselves. So my desires no longer dominate or control my life. We die to the world. So the things that are floating around out here that push me and pull me and tempt me, those things no longer control me or dominate my life. So to die to the law is to say, the law no longer controls or dominates my life because I, I'm, I'm dead to it. When did I die? I died when I somehow, mysteriously, when Jesus did. I'm joined to him. I'm in the circle. So those things that were true of him are true of me. Not everything, but that's one of the ones that is. And the, the, these Jewish troublemakers would say, that's, that's the issue you're, just, you're proving our point. If the law no longer dominates or controls your life, then how are you li- what's the motivation to live a holy life? 
What's the motivation to, to live an obedient life? What's the motivation to live a faithful life? You're saying people can do whatever they want. And that's this whole idea. No, I, I died to the law so that I could live for God. To live for God is the same thing as saying Christ or Jesus lives in me. In the life I live in this body, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those are two different ways of saying the same thing. To say that I'm living for God is the same thing as saying that Jesus is now living in me. And I'm living my life by faith or by trust in him. And that's the part that Paul said, y'all got to get this part. Yes, we're dead to the law. That doesn't mean we're dead to the law. And again, we can do whatever we want. Read Romans 6 if you have time. We're dead to the law in order to become alive to God, in order to live for him. So yes, we've been incorporated into Jesus, again, in some mysterious way. And so when he died, we died, and that means we die to the law. It also means, because we've this mysterious union, he lives in us. So the Holy One lives in me and you. The Holy One's not going to lead you into sin. The Righteous One lives in me and you. The Righteous One is not going to lead you into unrighteousness. The sinless one lives in me and you. He's not going to lead us into disobedience. That's the peace that Paul is trying to say to these guys. And again, he fleshes it out, especially in chapters 5 and chapter 6 of Galatians. Jesus living in us through the Holy Spirit, he produces things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Not things like rebellion and selfishness and all the other sins that we can list. We are in him and he is in us. And him being in us is better than us trying to follow the law. Always better. Rather than trying to follow this external that we wind up breaking over and over and over again. God says, new plan. I'm going to live within you by my Holy Spirit. He's going to write the law on your heart and he's going to move you to obedience. It's a way better option for us. And that's what Paul wants these. And again, he'll unpack it in the next four chapters. That's what he's wanting the Galatians to know in this group of Peter to know in this group of Jewish troublemakers to know. To, to say that we're justified, we're declared righteous by God through faith, through trusting in Jesus, does not then mean that we live lives of reckless, rebellious, sinful living. It means that we have been united with Jesus and he has taken up residence in our heart and he will lead us in a path of obedience and faithfulness. We were, we're going to take communion as an appropriate response to that word. And I think there's something about the, the act of communion that helps us, it helps remind us. Communion is more than a reminder, but it is a reminder not just of what Jesus has done for us, but what our appropriate response is. You're going to break off a piece of bread and dip it in this juice. The bread represents the body of Jesus broken for us. The juice represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And you're going to eat it. You're taking something that's outside of you, and then you're putting it in you. And that, to me, is a picture of what faith does for us. When we're... When, when we trust Jesus, we put our faith, our trust in him, we commit to him, we pledge our loyalty and allegiance 
to him, when we believe in him, those are different ways of saying the same thing. It's not just that we are incorporated into him. He takes up residence in our hearts. And so again, there's something about the physical act of communion that my prayer and hope for some of you taking communion a thousand times and that this morning there would be a renewed sense of there's actually, there's an internal reality here. This isn't just a ritual. What I'm doing in this physical act, it's a symbol and a sign of the truth that Jesus by the Holy Spirit is living within me. So before we take communion, I'll ask you two questions. One is, do you know that you have been declared righteous by the Father? Like, do you know that? There may be a, a handful of you who don't. Like if you were honest, you'd say, actually, not me. I've never put my faith or my trust in Jesus. And I would say doing so is as simple as taking communion. It's acknowledging that you're a lawbreaker, which again, for most of us is not a stretch. Have you lied? Have you ever called somebody a fool? You ever looked lustfully at someone? Ever in your whole life did you not honor your parents? Of course not. You know, that, those are the terms of the, that old covenant. And we've broken that. And I don't think that's hard for any of us to acknowledge. So we're not going to be declared righteous based on that. All the law can say is, you broke me. God made a different way through faith in Jesus, which is acknowledging I've broken the law, which is a way of saying I've sinned against you. Acknowledging that, we call that confession. And I pray that you would forgive me for that. I'm not going to try to work off my debt because I can't. I pray that you would forgive me of that. And in that moment, the answer to that, the answer to that request is always yes. Will you forgive me? The answer is yes. And he declares you righteous. Would you fill me with your spirit? And the answer to that's always yes as well. He'll come and take up residence in your heart. And if that's where you are this morning, we would love to talk with you about that. For most of you, you've already been declared righteous. You know you're standing before the Lord as one who's in right relationship with him. You know it. But for some of us, we have a hard time knowing it. There's still shame associated with some stuff from our past. And we would say, yeah, like, I get it. I know I'm forgiven, but we don't necessarily live that way. Back in the old days when people wrote with a pencil and you erased it, you know, you could still see the outline of whatever you wrote. That's not what forgiveness looks like. In Isaiah, it talks about forgiveness blotting out. So back in the really old days when you had whiteout, remember that? That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what forgiveness looks like. He's, Isaiah says, the Father removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. You can't get farther than that. But for some of us, he has forgiven our sins. He's removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. But we keep them kind of close. Because there's still shame associated with that. And I would encourage you as you take communion this morning, if that's you to receive the full benefit of Jesus' death. 
and his resurrection. You don't mean this at all. And this is going to sound like I'm kicking you while you're down, but I'm not. You don't mean this, but what you're communicating, if you're still experiencing and kind of living in the shame of something that God has forgiven, what you're communicating is Jesus' blood wasn't sufficient to fully cleanse you of that sin. And again, that's not what you mean, but that's the, it's the fruit of that attitude. And so I would encourage you to say no. If God says I'm in right standing with him, then I am. Whether I feel like it or not, I am. He's the one that gets to decide that. And so if he said you are, then you are. And if you're in Christ, then you are. When he looks at you, he sees you as pure, holy, spotless, without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. Even though you don't necessarily see yourself that way. So that's the first question. Do you know that you've been declared righteous by the Father Second question, is the life that you're now living being lived by faith in Jesus? Is the life that you're now living in this world, is it being lived by faith, by trust in Jesus? And for all of us, the answer to that is is yes and no. None of us are perfect in terms of living a life that's rooted in trust in Jesus, but there are places where we would say, I think we would say, yeah, I am here and maybe not here. And so I want to challenge and encourage you. We're going to take a minute and pray and see what the Holy Spirit convicts us of. And if he convicts you of an area of your life, a relationship, a circumstance, a thought pattern, a behavior a pattern where you're not living by faith, you're not living by trusting in him. I want to give you two pictures. As I was praying this morning, I had two different pictures that are pull in opposite directions. One, trust as letting go. So the picture in my mind was someone, an acrobat, who's letting go of one trapeze before he or she can grab onto the next one. So there's that moment where they're not holding on to anything. So as someone who's a former acrobat, it's scary. (laughs) That's a scary place to be. And so for some of you, What trust is going to look like in that relationship or circumstance is letting go. Your expectations, your control, that's the big one, isn't it? I'm going to let go of trying to control this. And you're going to let go before you can grab on to the next thing. That may be what the Lord is asking you to do. The other picture is very different. A guy pushing a wheelbarrow. Trust as pressing forward. For some of you, what it looks like to, whatever that area is, relationship, circumstance, whatever it is, trust looks like God has already, you know what you need to do. So you just need to pick up the wheelbarrow and get moving. And it may feel a bit like drudgery, but that's okay. For you to live trusting him is to take that step of obedience. So, again, this is stereotype. Normally, the people that don't want to pick up the wheelbarrow, they're happy to let go of the trapeze. Take it, God. And normally, the people that are... are that are holding on to that trapeze. They're the kind of people that are happy picking up wheelbarrows. 
And so for most of us, the, the trust piece, it's going to pull us against kind of our normal nature. And that's why it's called faith. And so we're going to, again, take a minute and we're going to pray and God may convict you. He may bring something to your mind in this relationship, in this circumstance, at this time. And it may be something that in the past you would say, you know what, I was actually, uh, I was trusting. But as time's gone on, maybe you're not as much anymore. And so it's just a chance to do a reset on that. Is is trust going to look like letting go? Or is trust going to look like picking up that wheelbarrow and pressing forward? Another thing, this is just a a thought, and then we're going to pray One of the things sometimes we have to let go of in terms of trust, and this isn't easy, is letting go of our rights because then it's the the scary part about that is if, if I'm not looking out for me, then who's looking out for me? And it can be hard to say, well, I'm just gonna trust that Jesus is gonna look out for me when you feel like you keep getting kicked in the stomach. That that can be a hard thing to do as well. And so we're just we're gonna pray. I'm not gonna be prescriptive about that. We're just gonna pray and see how the Lord would lead us. So I'm gonna ask you to stand and we've got some little brief prayers that we're gonna pray here on the screen. We're gonna pray them out loud. So we're gonna start with the first word Jesus and we're gonna pray down to that with the Father. So we're gonna pray all of that at once out loud and then we're gonna pause. Good? So let's start with that Jesus, I acknowledge that you're the bread of life and that whoever comes to you will never be hungry and whoever believes in you will never be thirsty. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the true bread from heaven, who gives life to the world. I acknowledge that my work is to believe in Jesus, whom you have sent. Help me in my unbelief. Holy Spirit, Search my heart and show me where I'm struggling to live as one who is in right standing with the Father. So you can close your eyes and just ask the Lord that simply and see if you bring something to your mind. Most likely it would be something from your past that still brings you a great deal of shame. If something comes up, you can pray something like this. Father, I acknowledge that you have forgiven me of fill in the blank. But the reality is it still causes me a great deal of shame. I know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse me. I know that in my head. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to communicate that truth to my heart. I want to walk in the fullness of your forgiveness. I want to live as one who is in right standing with you, Father. I want to see myself the way you see me. All right, we'll read this last, pray this last prayer. Holy Spirit, search my heart and show me where I'm not living my life by faith in Jesus. So again, something like this. 
the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, some area of your life where you're not trusting. Father, I acknowledge that in this area of my life, I'm not trusting you. And if you know why, you can say, and this is why. I pray that you'd forgive me. In my head, ultimately, I know. I know that you've got it. I know that you do. But here on the ground, when in the circumstances, when my emotions are involved, I don't feel it. So I pray that you would help me and you can fill in the blank, either let go or press forward. Would you give me the grace to do that? I pray that you, Holy Spirit, as I take communion, that I would have a greater sense of your love for me and of the reality of you living within me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 